One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is episode 96 with Anchor Nagpal. Welcome to the As Told by Nomads podcast. Where you'll learn how nomads, third culture kids, entrepreneurs, and leaders all over the world embrace their global identity and use their difference to make a difference. And now, having lived on four different continents, here's your host, Tyo Roxit. Welcome everybody. Today I have with me Ankur Nagpal, and Ankur Nagpal is the CEO and founder of Teachable. But um, it's very interesting guy. He's gotten uh, an interesting rise to his career. So he's uh, you know, uh, originally from India, but he's done a lot of of several things: being an international student, being an entrepreneur, being a developer with Amazon, um, and developing courses. So we're gonna talk about his journey to uh to the united states and how um he figured entrepreneurship was the path for him so welcome to the show anchor thanks man it's great to be here pleasure pleasure is mine so where did it all start for you i, I know I, I was doing a lot of research on you and it, you know i saw many things i saw you were one of the largest developers in facebook i saw you know you had accounts at udemy i saw you had amazon you know it seems like you have a history of uh of doing some cool things but I'm curious to hear from you where you started and how you sort of got involved in entrepreneurship and just, you know, really in New York City here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's interesting. I, I moved to America when I was 17 years old. Um, I'd spent all my life growing up in a small country in the Middle East called Oman. Um, so it's interesting because I'm Indian through and through, born in India, but I never even lived in India. I grew up in Oman in the Middle East, came to America when I was 17. So truly a third culture kid. Um, having never really, you know, living in a different country than where I'm from and then moving to America. But I moved to America to go to college when I was 17 to the University of California, Berkeley. And like like a good Indian kid, thought I wanted to be an engineer. Um, turned out I was totally, totally wrong. That is not what happened. But at the time, I thought, yeah, I want to be an engineer, which, you know, led me down the path of interning at Amazon my freshman year. And not only was that my first job, that's also been the only job I've ever had in my life. Um, and it was one summer. It was one freshman summer. I was 18 years old. The only time I've ever like been employed by someone lasted three months. Um, and those three months were very pivotal in my life because one, I realized I don't want to be an engineer. I just realized that it's not 
I'm not as good at it as I think I am, and I don't enjoy it that much. But those three months were also important because that's when the Facebook platform launched. So it was those the same three months, summer of 2007, the Facebook platform launched, and I started messing around with the Facebook platform, building Facebook applications, and that went on to define the next four years of my life. Wow. It's crazy. You and I have such similar stories because I came to the States when I was 17 as well. I believe that was around 2007. I think I think here you came around. Did you come around when you come? 2006, 2007? Yeah, 2000. And, I came fall of 2006, the uh, yeah. summer of 2007. Right. So I came, yeah, fall 2007 then. And then it was it was very interesting for me to hear about your TCK background, your third culture background, because why Oman uh, is an Indian? What, what was that? So, so in the mid in the mid eighties, what basically happened with Oman is they were trying to they were trying to go. They were very resource rich. They were trying to go and become. They're building a lot of infrastructure from scratch. So it's almost like a country trying to catch up with the rest of the world with having a lot of money. So what that did is it created a lot of opportunities for people around that geographical area, of which there was a rising class of South Asians like my parents that were well-educated, went to good universities. The best opportunities for a lot of them there were in countries like Oman because it was a resource-rich country that just needed talent. They needed you know, smart, educated people to help take the country forward. So, yeah, my dad moved there in, in the mid, mid-80s um, just because opportunities there were substantially better than what was available in India at the time. And that coincided with a huge number of South Asian immigration to Oman at the time. Oh, love it. I had, I had no idea. So you move in and you having to sort of communicate across cultures. What was that like initially as a kid? And then we'll go into what it was like when you first came to the United States. Yeah. So growing up, we never felt it just because there were so many Indian people in Oman, right? So my high school, for instance, not my high school, every school I went to, elementary onwards, was always Indian school. So I only really interacted with other Indian people. Um I only realized that the Indian people I interacted with growing up are very different from people that grew up in India. I didn't know that until I came to America. <laughs> uh, we almost had our own kind of sub-community there of, you know, Indian, like, cause of Indian people living in Oman. Um, so the first, first time around growing up, it, you know, I wasn't really conscious of much. Also in Oman, um, everyone speaks English. English is kind of the default communication language. I could get by living there for 17 years despite not knowing Arabic. Um, a lot of other countries, you wouldn't have that luxury. If you lived there, you had to learn the language. In Oman, we never even learned Arabic. Um, had had a very, very good um, upbringing there. Like, I still go back every Christmas. I love, I love being there. But it's also a very sheltered community, right? Just because you're around people very similar to you. Uh, moving to America, that changed. And, you know, overall, that was for the best. And it's been one of the best decisions of my life to come here. Okay, so what was that like when you came? Was it did you have a culture shock moment or was it easy for you? For me, when I came, growing up as a diplomatic kid, it was easy. Transition was easier than people might expect it because I had gone to an American middle school, so I sort of you know started to develop a certain yeah. accent, and it was easy for me to fit in. But I've talked to other people who were like, "Wow, everything is bigger in America. Like this is crazy." So <laughs> I don't know what your experience is like. I don't know. I feel almost spoiled when when I say this, and people don't believe me, but that. It really wasn't that different, and it definitely wasn't hard. Um, I grew up, you know, English has always been my first language. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found people in America that shared the same interests pretty much almost as soon as I came here. Yeah, my ac- the accent was different, but it's still the same language. Mm-hmm. Um, 
American popular culture was dominant, you know, even, believe it or not, even in Oman, even with Indian high schools, we watch the same movies as everyone over here. We watch the same TV shows. We listen to the same music. Like, you know, it was not that different. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, I believe, I, don't feel, don't feel spoiled because I, I completely yeah. get it. It seems like you found connectors um, and you were able to, you know, I mean, like you said, pop culture. Yeah. Um, for me, pop culture is a way I connected easily with people yeah. and pop culture in America was pretty yeah. much a lot of the same popular things right hollywood the same music and type of stuff yeah. um okay the only so, thing, the yeah. only thing i missed was i i played a lot of cricket growing up and here i was like oh well they're the sports are all different um, <laughs> but now i'm a huge football fan so uh okay so i'll just go through my three connectors are sports pop culture and geography yeah. so you i guess i grew growing up initially i played a lot of so, uh, soccer, football, you know, whichever one you decide to say. But um, I quickly had to learn basketball and tennis and all the other sports and football, like American football. But cricket is something that's not played here. So, I mean, yeah. I see that you were like the head of product at cricket.com and that's like a big part of who you are. Did, yeah. did you just like abandon that? Yeah, I feel terrible um, <laughs> because maybe until the age of 15, I wanted to be an, a professional cricket player. Um, that's about when I discovered I'm good enough to play for Oman internationally, which I did. Oh, but wow. that's like playing for America internationally. You're playing for it in a sport where it's not a major sport. Like I'd have no chance playing in a country that actually played it, wow. um, which is a bit of a sobering realization. But once I've come here, I've become really, really bad at staying in touch with playing cricket, despite the fact that this is why New York City is amazing. Um, I recently found out New York City has 72 Division One cricket teams and, you know, hundreds of cricket teams in New York, and I still haven't played. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. 72. I never, yeah, I didn't even know that. Um, yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. So then, we, you know, sports, common language. Uh, you picked up several things. You found people based on common interests. What led you to saying, well, entrepreneurship is my path? Because you only worked at Amazon for, you said, about yep. a, mo- a month or so, or a semester. Yeah, so I worked, worked at Amazon for a semester. That coincided with the launch of the Facebook platform. Uh, big surprise, but the first ever Facebook app I built was Fantasy Cricket. So like fantasy football, but for cricket. <laughs> uh, that set me down a path, though, of just seeing the power of entrepreneurship firsthand. Um, by the end of that summer, I was making... 25 bucks a day, nothing, nothing like life changing, like enough, but enough that I was like, wow, you know, this is food. I'm making food money every day, kind of an autopilot, just doing what's already fun. Um, fast forward a few months and then making hundreds of dollars a day. Um, by the end of the first semester back at school, I'd made, you know, about a hundred thousand dollars just by continually building applications. Um, but it's mostly just stumbling into the path of entrepreneurship rather than making a conscious decision mm-hmm. that I want an entrepreneur. So again, that's something else I feel very fortunate about. A lot of people that become entrepreneurs have to take ballsier decisions than I did because for me, it was never a ballsy decision of like, I'm not, I'm giving up employment to do this. I just like went to class less and built shit. Um, so I never had to make a conscious choice that I'm going to, I decided I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, but by the time I graduated college, that's all I'd been doing and that's all I knew how to. The idea of going and, you know, getting a boss and getting a job seemed preposterous. What about as an international student? Was that, were you, when did you, you know, figure out the residency issue? Because, oh, you know, man, that, that was, that was yeah, because you got the F1 status, right, as a student. And then, so, I mean, it's, it's been, it's been, it was a rough journey. I mean, I've been through, you know, an F1, I did the OPT for 12 months. I got the 17-month extension on the OPT. 
I then realized, oh, well, I need to figure this thing out better. Um, and I intended to apply for an O1, but I got lazy and ran out of time before I applied. And I, have, I was facing a decision. I was like, wow, how do I stay on in the country? So then I applied for a degree that I didn't want or care about for at, at a small community college just to get another F1 while I applied for my O1. Um, and then I applied for my O1 and then finally through my O1, I did the EB1 and got a green card and, gotcha. you know, solved that once and for all. <laughs> but I definitely, it was definitely very messy for a while. Uh, no, I, I hear you. Cause I have gone through the F1 and then after college, I, I, I got a work visa. So HP1, then I decided to get my MBA here in New York city. So I went back to the F1 and yep. that, then I graduated in May and I was talking to a few lawyers and it seemed like the O1 was a path for me. Um, mm-hmm. And they kept saying, so I guess I'm, I'm technically in my OPT now. So I have about uh, seven months to decide if I want to do the O1 again. Mm-hmm. Well, I've never done the O1. Do the O1 or get the the uh, HP1. And I guess the, the difference is there's no cap with the O1 or as much as there is yep. with the HP1. So, um, no. So I, at the O1, you also have the opportunity to apply for the EB1. The EB1 is the same criteria as the O1, except the bar is a little higher. It's the same criteria, but you get a green card instead of a visa. And that was an amazing process because from the time I applied for the green card to getting it was less than two weeks. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's crazy. And for the listeners listening, I know a lot of what we just said in the last couple of minutes might be like, wait, what's O1? Makes no sense at all. (laughs) We're like, O1, H1. But as international students, people to come to the United States, you need to get a visa to get into the country. So the F1 is the student visa allows you to get there. And then, you know, when you say OPT, you have a year or so after you graduate to find work or to, you know, it's called optional practical you know training or something like that. And yep. you figure out what you want to do. And then you can either go back to school or get another, um, uh, get a visa or a company to sponsor you. And that's the HB1. If you're O1, it's sort of like for creatives or entrepreneurs or business people or actors or act, you know, athletes or stuff like that, where they can. Um, my my O1 lawyer though told me he recently got a Playboy Playmate and O1 visa, so I was pretty impressed with him. Yeah, oh, well. <laughs> yeah. really? Look yeah. at him. Well, I mean, look at O1s bringing people all over here. <laughs> but um, no, so I, I love I love it, and I wanted to just touch on that before. We, going to Teachable and what you're doing with courses and why you think courses is one of the best ways to build your brand online. Because a lot of listeners, you know, they're from 109 countries. I started this initially as a, a voice for TCK's nomads and uh, and it's gone on to be TCK nomads and international entrepreneurs. And a, lo- a lot of the questions they ask sometimes is, well, I want to build my business as an entrepreneur and there's a certain hurdle and you are one that I, I saw and I was doing the same thing, uh, sort of I'm doing that decide, you know, decided, well, entrepreneurship is something I'm doing early and I'm going to figure this out regardless. So I just want to really touch on that. But, um, so then you decided to go to use Fedora, which became Teachable. Now yeah. describe to the audience what Teachable is and why you're so passionate about it. Yeah. Teachable. So, I mean, a little, a little bit of backstory. Um, I built a Facebook app business to a pretty successful point. Um, you know, I did it for a couple of years after graduating college, made a decent amount of money, but was at a point in my life where I realized that one, you know, I, I want to keep starting companies. This is something I believe passionately in, but the next time I built something, I wanted to build more value. Um, Facebook application was great. It was a very successful business, but you know, we helped, we built personality quizzes and silly social games. The next business I wanted to build, um, I wanted to do something that added value. 
Um, and that's how I stumbled into, you know, what was originally called Fedora and now Teachable. Um, I was spending some time doing a little bit of online teaching on Udemy, doing a little bit of, you know, in-person teaching, enough to be fully convicted that online courses are the future. Just the ability, just the ability for anyone to teach anyone is such a powerful concept, um, especially in the world that, that we're evolving into where, you know, I think... I think the world or like the world in the past, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs built businesses selling physical goods. Might it be setting up a drop shipping business, might it be, you know, setting up a storefront. I think the future of that is people selling information, selling their minds, selling digital goods. Um, and that's what, you know, led us to build Fedora, which is now teachable as a way to enable anyone to build online courses. Um, and what's cool is most of the people that use our platform to build online courses they're all what we define, they're all mostly entrepreneurs. So, you know, we look at this, we look at our mission as enabling entrepreneurs to be the teachers of the future by selling online courses. And, and you know, like I said, I, t I told you I built a platform on you because I was thinking of launching a course for international yes. students and stuff like that. And I, I get into those conversations with people when they talk about courses where they say, I get the courses is great and it's a way to create income. But I don't know if my niche is something that's important, right? Some people might say, uh, if I'm teaching someone, let's take my case, for example. I'm teaching someone to be, how do international students to be better, uh, to fit better in the United States. They can say, well, it's not like teaching me how to be a designer. It's not a certificate type of thing. Why would I pay for that? What do you say to those people? So two things. One, we have an amazing amount of data now, right? One of the cool things about building this company is we see all the data, right? Every day. Every day there's about, you know, 1,000, 1,500 different course purchases, about 60, 70,000 students interacting on our platform. So we see, we see data, we see what they do. And what's interesting is no matter how bizarre the niche is, no matter how, how you think the topic is unprofitable, there's people making money in it. Like it, it's blowing our mind all the time just by being just, you know, like, no, we've seen people make money on all kinds of topics, not just programming, marketing, design, and other things that, you know, because what you pointed out is very fair. It's one of the biggest objections we hear when we're training people is people believing that their interests are inherently unprofitable because they're not teaching iPhone programming. But the right. good news is we have data that shows that, you know, no matter, the no matter what your topic is, chances are there's a profitable course in there. At the same time, you still, I still see a lot of people who don't think about courses the right way. And I think you still ultimately have to solve a problem for a student. And if you do that, the topic doesn't matter. But if you're coming at it just trying to you know, record videos on a broad kind of area, that's problematic. But, no, but if you, no matter whether your topic is art, painting, music, whatever it is, if you can solve someone's problem, if you can think about your course as a way to take someone to an outcome and you define what the outcome is, you define what the transformation is, you can find a profitable course in any topic. No, I love it. I love it. So finding, approaching it as a way to solve a problem. But yeah. okay, so let's say you have that mindset now. What are you know three to five steps that one can take? Because I know there's putting the course together, there's marketing, there's getting a community of people to so buy. Um, first you know. thing, the first thing you want to do is you want to identify, I mean, we can workshop it right now, right? So what was your, co what was your course going to be on? It was going to be. It was going to help uh, international students in the United States um, succeed. Okay, so what? I, the first thing I would tell you is okay. So I would ask you to be a little bit more specific with your transformation. So the transformation you know you're doing is you're helping an international student succeed. How are you helping them succeed? Is it getting better, getting a better social life? Is it having financial success? Is it 
getting them a visa? Like, how, how are you going to help them succeed? Like, what is the best case transformation a student will have with the course? Well, look at this is great. I love this. This is live. Um, so it was basically centered around finding the cultural fit, right? So finding, in, incorporating the best way to use digital media to, you know, to sell yourself to employers, best way to take advantage of the social life in the United States and, and fit in, um, and, and, and while embracing yourself. And the other thing was going through the courses and balancing your social life with your academic life where you feel like you get a balanced life. Sure. Um, as well as that, so it was like all encompassing that type of thing. Sure. So, so okay, I, I won't, I won't push much more. But when you identify the, you know, the transformation, um, the next thing I would tell you to do is think about the steps someone needs to take um, to get to the end transformation. Um, and when you have those steps listed out, I would pretty much line up each step as a section or a module of your course, and then record smaller video lectures under each of the steps. And when you do that, you have you know your full kind of course outline, um, yeah. and that's and that's that's all that it is to you know getting a course done. And it's just a case of filling the blanks, recording it, and you know that's the production part. Well, On the other side, you have to think about the marketing of the course, and the marketing of the course is the same as you know marketing any product online, which is building an email list of subscribers that care about this problem. Um, and the way you do that is by giving away something valuable. It could be a podcast, it could be, you know, recorded interviews, it could be giving away something valuable for free in exchange for an email address, building your email list, and then, you know, when you're ready, selling the course to your email list. So I'll tell you what, so since we're using me as a, as a case study, and like you, I'm very open. Um, this was obviously my first, one of my first big failures in entrepreneurship when I did it was, I said, I'm going to create this source. Uh, you know, I've had this podcast, I have a media platform, um, I'm, I'm in an soon as an entrepreneur, I'm going to do this, right? And mm-hmm. um, I'm going to go through the whole fear process I went through. I was like, yep. oh, I'm not going to do it. So I, I created this thing because Seed is an international student in, the, in America. Like you said, obviously, I need to yep. make it more specific, more specific, find a, a more action goal. Yep. And then went about doing the interviews with several international students across several parts of, of the world that come to the state. So I'd had, I think, uh, seven interviews. So that, that was going to be my bonus. And then I broke it down into the modules, preparation for college in the U.S., uh, the second module is like perception, stereotypes, and expectations, um, how to deal with that. And then, you know, the third was uh, getting jobs and post-graduation. And then I did the last section to be bonus interviews. So I got it all together. I think it ended up being like. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Maybe seven, oh, a lot of hours, 17 hours or so. It was a lot of recording. Wow. Um, yeah, no, so I really, I really went gung-go, put all in, maybe 17 hours was too much, I think it was 15 hours, 
And then I was like, yes, I can't believe I just did it. You know, Fedora at the time, was, now it's teachable. It makes yeah. it so easy to put the course. I'm going to go and spread it all around Facebook and, 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 and it's to my existing newsletter. Um, and I'll build a community of people who are interested in that and reach out to international students. Um, so I did it. And then for the next two weeks or so, I was like, <sighs> crickets. And yeah. then I was like, ah, nah, 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 whatever. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again. So I did it for like a month and then I got discouraged and I was like, I, I, I understand the process of failing forward, but I was like, I wonder what, yeah. I'm, I wonder what I'm doing wrong. And I'm curious because yeah. I know I read all the success stories and I read all that. And the reason why I'm glad that you're here is, I want to communicate to the audience that, like, what you said is true. It's, it's, there's probably a problem with the way I, I initially approached it. And mm-hmm. that, and even if you fail, there's obviously something that you can figure out of the market. But, yep. it's not a, it's not a way to discourage yourself. That hasn't shut me off. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, exactly. yeah, I think, how, how many people did you launch into in your email list? It was about, it was 400 people I targeted, I think. Yes, 450. Okay. Yeah. And did you run a specific launch period? Like, did you say, hey, you have X amount of time to buy this course? Like, did you create urgency See, while look at that. Exactly. I didn't do that. So, you, you, there was no urgency. There's no cre- creation of that. But, and it was just sort of, I, I, I don't know how I magically expected this to happen, but it's one of those things. So, I just put it out there. I had like a network of people sharing with the newsletters. And I was like, hey, this is, Something that's interested, and obviously, one of the things I picked up on was um, they wanted to know why. There was no free thing for them to listen to initially, yep. and there was no, like, like why? Like, why am I listening to you? The other, the other, the yeah. other advice, if you ever want to re-pick it up and try and find a way to, you know, relaunch it, what I would ask, invite you to do is hopefully, one, you increase the size of your email list, but secondly, try a funnel. How much are you pricing the course at? Ah, that was the other thing. I think I priced it at 500 or, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Because so if you're if you're selling a five hundred dollar course, you need to build more trust. And I think the way I don't, so my point is, I'm not saying sell it cheaper. I think five hundred is fine. I think it's worth it. But you know, the way I would recommend doing that is try inviting everyone on your email list to attend a live webinar, a live video presentation. Give them value for forty five minutes. They get just by being there. And in the last fifteen minutes, make them a good offer to buy the course. Because when it comes to when you're getting people to spend over you know a hundred maybe two hundred dollars, you need much much more trust from them, um, and that trust is earned. And one of the quick ways to earn that is by doing a webinar or doing a presentation. Um, and generally, when you do a webinar to your audience, and you know it's a good webinar, you can convert as many as twenty five percent of all viewers to buyers. Um, which means the way that math works is. If you're actually getting 25% of people that watch the webinar to buy, that means everyone that watches the webinar is worth over $100 to you. And then you can reverse calculate and, you know, accordingly build a funnel deciding like, wow, if I can only put, you know, 50 people on a webinar, I can have a $5,000 webinar. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, hey, and yeah, <laughs> uh, my, my audience is starting to get used to it, but I feel like they, they, they've, they asked me to be more open and I've always been open, but yeah. this is, this is, this is great that this has happened because... Yep. I'm someone that hasn't been jaded by this, right? I, yep. I just my thing is I was going to go into, into back into the kitchen, come back, re-strategize, yep. and do it in a better way. But yep. I run across a lot of people that have yep. done what I've done. Don't, don't get me wrong; like we've all failed. The only reason I might appear knowledgeable now mm-hmm. is because you have an unfair advantage. I didn't figure this out for my own. We yeah. have everyone's data. We can see everyone's data. We see everything that's working, <laughs> not working. Yeah, we literally have an unfair advantage right now, and you know that's what I'm sharing. Absolutely. But, 
Absolutely. But I, w- I wanted to bring that up to, to say that I know that you feel like courses are the future or in terms of brand, in terms of building businesses. I feel, man. I know. I oh, know. well, so, look, let's see, Anchor, look at that. Look at that. Yeah. Forgive me for, for saying yeah. that. Yeah. He yeah. knows, you yeah. know that it's the future. Yeah. I want you to communicate that, um, talk on that more, elaborate on that more, why you feel so, and then some of the success stories, can you talk about them and... Um, yeah, Explain absolutely. to the audience why they should get into it, really. So I think I, I think I think one of the reasons courses are the future is just because you have the power to change people's lives in ways that were not possible before. So for instance, we had you know two kids, John and Elliot. Uh, I don't know why I call them kids; they're actually older than I am. But either way, you know they're 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 twenty. They're they're now twenty eight. They were twenty seven when they did this. Um, they taught iPhone programming to people using our platform. They made over $2 million in sales the first year, a million dollars net to them. But that's not even what's cool. What's really cool is they have so many case studies from people that took their $79 course teaching you how to build iPhone apps, and those people in turn got new jobs, um, went from not being a developer to being a professional developer. They got raises. They built applications. They created such an amazing network of change around them from a $79 course that you know otherwise would not be possible. Um, the other cool thing about them being a great case study to talk about is these guys were not, you know, a lot of people do not teach courses because they worry that they're not enough of an expert. They worry that, hey, you know, who am I to teach iPhone programming? Like, I'm not an expert at this. And that's something John and Elliot faced themselves. They were not professional developers. They did not have a computer science degree. They were not people that wrote iPhone applications at their job. They struggled to teach themselves. They taught them, they're self-taught. They struggled at learning how to build iPhone apps for a very long time, finally got kind of okay at it, and then they started teaching. But you know what? That made it more effective from a student's perspective because as a student, you want to learn from someone like you. You don't necessarily want to learn from the person that's you know the biggest expert. And that's what's kind of broken with the college education system is we have all these professors teaching us that we can't relate to. The power of everyone being able to teach everyone is there's some people to whom your story makes you the most relevant person to teach it. John and Elliot were very relevant teachers because they struggled learning how to code in the way a university professor never would because they got their degree 30 years ago. And that, that's what I find so cool ultimately about online education is, yeah, of course, you can empower people to make money and all of that. But students now have the opportunity to learn from someone just like them, someone that's one step ahead of them, someone that's two steps ahead of them, someone that used to struggle with the same things they struggled with, which ultimately means more empathetic teachers. That, that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about online courses. Well, you see that? You see that's that's. I was listening to that. I was like, "Go ahead, preach, anchor, preach." <laughs> but um, yeah. no, I think it's great. I think you have. I mean, look, you're talking to someone that's gone through the education system. I've done. Yeah. I got my MBA for goodness' sake. So I've gone through the whole formal, and many times I find myself thinking, especially since I'm always the youngest in, in these classes, and I, you know, I sort yeah. of start everything early. But I, I always wish there was a more on demand, more accessible way I could get something that was easily tweakable and yeah. not something that was no more practical, right? So yeah. the other the other the other reason I'm excited is what I told you earlier about just entrepreneurs. I think the most motivated people in the world are entrepreneurs. Yep. By allowing the most by allowing the most successful teachers of the future to be entrepreneurs, we're just gonna have teachers that are much, much more motivated. Absolutely. Like 
the motivation level of teachers that are you know selling courses directly to their students i think results in higher quality and more motivated teachers absolutely absolutely and the, we're going to wrap up soon but the reasons i want to talk about so this teacher will help people market courses i was listening to one of the interview you did with zendesk it seemed like one of the things you talked about was um you know how you you help market uh online courses because sometimes so i see feature we're not, people. we're not a marketplace right so we're never going to bring you students the way udemy does the flip side of that is we also don't take away your students the way udemy does to sell them in competitive products so we don't have a cross-pollination system when you bring a student to your teachable school they are uniquely yours the way they are when you bring them to your website so we help you power your website but at the same time we build a lot of tools that enable you to market it so every school comes with an inbuilt affiliate program so you can appoint someone else to be an affiliate and help them promote the school for you we integrate with email marketing tools we let you do email marketing straight from the admin panel so we have a lot of marketing features built into the product but we do not market your courses for you for the simple reason that that would entail us also taking your students and sending them to other courses which we don't believe in no, no, I, I believe that. So that's all. You give them the resources. There are a yep. lot of. There, I've attended a few webinars. Very action uh, yep. packed, but all very informational. Um, you know, responsive to questions. So, so that's good. So you, you basically equip them to be their own yep. mini, mini entrepreneurs themselves. Um, yep. Questions I wanted to say. So someone comes, someone's listening to this po- uh, podcast right now, and they're thinking, you know what? I've had this course idea that I've always wanted to do. I want to teach people how to knit. I want to do something. Or I want to teach you how to be a cat lover. Not anything. Whatever. How can I do this? What website should I go to? What would you say to them? Yeah, I would say one, you know, go to teachable.com, guys. And no, I'm just kidding. But the first thing, the biggest thing we, we got to think about is one, I would spend some time hanging out where other people hang out in your target audience, right? So maybe, maybe knitting. Let's just take knitting. Um, see where people that are knitting hang out. It could be maybe there's a Reddit community for knitting. Maybe there's another discussion board. And try and look through the problems people are having. Like, where are these people, your potential customers, getting stuck? What are the problems they're having? And map those problems to a transformation you can provide for them. And when you get that transformation, the transformation can be, you know, help someone learn how to knit X thing. Or it could be help someone avoid knots. I don't know enough about knitting to think of what a good transformation is. But once you try and identify that, try having fun with it. See if you can, you know, find one person in the community offer to train them for free on Skype for 20 minutes and see if, you know, what you're saying works. Like, do that kind of customer development. Start helping people. And when you have that, when you kind of have that validation that this, you know, this is something that works, that's when you can invest in, you know, making either a small mini course where you give stuff away for free to build an audience or if you're, you know, feeling bold, just get into building a paid course and find ways of marketing it like, you know, maybe you find someone influential in the knitting community. Maybe it's someone you've just trained on Skype that now loves you so much that they'll help market your course for you. Um, and go to people with knitting audiences and use them to help sell your course. No, I, I, absolutely. I, I love that. And the thing I wanted to say with, with everything that you said, it's whether you fail or you succeed, the thing that you really need to do is understand your target market, right? Understand their yep. pain points. And that's everything illustrated. That's something I didn't do a good job of initially. I will, don't worry, I will relaunch and it will be unteachable. But it, I just, I've been, what I've been doing the past few months is getting the research, like you said. And yeah, then, also, also, I don't, you should probably never record 
uh, no, I'm not not calling you up. But you sh- you shouldn't record a 15 hour course upfront. Exactly. Um, you can pre try seeing if you can pre sell stuff. See if you can. You can also do this other lazy thing where you <laughs> where yeah. you have a launch and you only have the first week's content developed and then you kind of do it live. And no, absolutely. No, yeah, please. I want you to call me out. That's what this yeah. is for. I, I, yeah. I, I'm as open to this type of stuff as, as I can, and this is how um, I learned. But like I said, it, my when I, what I one of my first mistakes and one of the things I've talked about with other course developers is so. For example, I I create a 15 hour course. I feel like well, if I'm putting 15 hours of work, it better be 500 dollars. Yeah, but that brings about this interesting question of pricing because I've seen courses that it might be around that range or even less, and it's. It sells for much less, but you know they have a lot of success. How do you determine what pricing should be? That's so a this, very tricky. This, this bugs me to no end because most people don't do this. But I think you should price based on outcome and not hours of content. Right. I think you must think about how valuable the outcome is for someone, mm-hmm. and spend your time as a course creator taking people to the outcome. When I'm buying a course, I'm buying a shortcut to an outcome. And by making me go through 15 hours of stuff to get to the outcome, if you can take me there in five hours or three hours, I would much rather you take me there in three hours. And I think that makes it worth as much, if not more, by taking me to the outcome. Ultimately, with courses, students are not shopping for hours of video. Students are shopping for outcomes. And I would price based on the outcome. Like if your outcome can, you know, make a finance, if your outcome can get someone a $10,000 raise and your course is is $500 even though it only has four or five hours of video that's okay the outcome you're providing them is so valuable that if you can get them there in a short amount of time power to you versus you know just loading your course with a lot of hours yeah no I see I love it and this this is one of the reasons why um you know we're both entrepreneurs and we're, we're both um I guess from foreign countries but the thing that the one you I'm sure you would agree with this one that has to as an entrepreneur, as someone who was a millennial, as someone who's trying to, you know, figure the, you know, build businesses and digital platforms, is you have to be open to to pivoting, to realizing yep. when you're wrong, and to accepting those type of things. So, it, it, what you're saying is, get to the value, yep. and communicate that value. Yep. People want and that. We live in this time where people are like, blah, blah 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 blah. If you can't, if you know, if they're listening to you for a few hours, they're like, ah, yeah, what is this? It's not going to be there. So the quicker yep. you get to communicate how valuable your course is. The yep. faster you get the audience and the community you want to do. And also know, know your avatar. I can't, I mean, yep. I know you were saying that, but I can't stress that enough because I've been building the media company. And, and once I started to do that, it's, it's in my, you know, everything shifted really. So it's, yep. uh, it's very important. I, I love that you're saying that. I mean, it actually ex- accentuating all those points and everything you've said. Yep. All right. So, uh, as we close here, I want to do some more fun things here. You came to the States at 17. What are some fun things? What do you think you do with fun? I, I imagine you don't just build businesses. I'm sure you do some other things. Uh, you know, especially now that you're in New York City, right? Do you, what do you do for fun? How do you hang out? What do you? Yeah, man. Um, so the pro, yeah. Um, I've, I like to keep myself pretty busy. As I said, I grew up playing a lot of sports growing up. So that's one of the things, you know, I, I play a little bit of flag football. I might be one of the only people in the world whose favorite sports are American football and cricket. You rarely have that combination of That's people. That's the right combination. <laughs> um, yeah, started playing. I've been starting playing a lot of squash just because it's as New York gets cold. It's one of the few sports you can keep playing. So I keep myself busy with that. Um, obviously, New York is a great, great city to be in your twenties in, and you know I'm probably guilty of going out an irresponsible number of times. 
<laughs> don't worry, don't worry. We'll we'll we'll, we'll lose our imaginations with that. Yeah. But, but this is. I have this interesting question. This might actually this might cause some friction right here. But you yeah. you love American football right now. I love American football as well. What what is your team, sir? The Niners, man. But they're oh so- okay okay. Well, never mind. I thought you were about to say the, the Jets or something. You said or or the uh, the Giants. But okay, fine. The Niners. Yeah, yeah I, I was in California for so long at the time. You know, we saw the rise of the Harbaugh years. Um, they're such a pathetic team right now that it's hard to kind of, you know, feel the same feelings. Oh, my but, gosh. Yeah, what happened to Colin Kaepernick? Like, seriously, I have no yeah. idea. Who is this? Yeah. And, and, then, then, and it's mirrored by Harbaugh going to Michigan and just killing it over there. I'm like, what is going yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, he's, 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 he did the same to Stanford, too. Uh, I was also a college football fan when I went to Cal. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so you know, I'm definitely, definitely a huge football fan, um, and a huge fan of sports business too. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, you know, the first the first game I ever built was fantasy cricket. One of my long term dreams is to take. If you look at American sports and the business of American sports, sports are incredibly well productized in America. And growing up watching cricket, I couldn't help but feel one of my longer term missions, and this is you know the next twenty years, not the next ten years, is to take some of the great sports business from American sport and apply it to cricket because it's a sport that's, you know, run, it's not run like a modern sport. It's not run like a modern business in any way at all. It's very, very backward. And it's something I care so passionately about, you know, as a sport that I want to bring the best of American culture, the best of American sports business back to cricket. Um, and that's definitely something I'm passionate about in the long term future. No, I, I I completely with you. I often say that about my country, Nigeria. I want to apply a lot of the the principles that the Western world have done and have put into practice in business in general, and apply them to you know to an emerging market like Nigeria because you can start to see it. There's so many potential opportunities. What a foreigner might take for granted is something that would be easily generating a lot of jobs back home for me, for example, like that. Um, yeah. And it's the same sort of model with sports because, you know, you're into sports. I'm very into sports. You see Fantasy Duel. You see all Draft yeah. Kings. You see all these kind of people. And, and I went, when you were saying early interview when you said cricket, I didn't want to derail the interview but until now. Yeah. When you said cricket, I was like, I I wonder if Anchor thought, has thought about doing something like this for cricket because this – this is yeah. this is such a big money thing yeah. right now. Yeah, it's every and, and it, fantasy day. Like you guys, cricket's yeah. placed with days, right? Yeah, I well, there's a three hour version, a one day version, and a five day version. But the three hour version is probably the most the most common. Yeah, but yeah, it's just, it's just so like you look you look at an NFL game. It's such a well made product, right? It's very well productized. It's very well monetized. It's like it's built in a very, very good way that makes it easy for the casual fan to get behind. Um, that's not the same with a lot of other sports. Like the American sports market is so much more mature than the sports market, you know, anywhere else. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Um, and I, if I if I can get FIFA to get their stuff together, they have the yeah. the most popular sport in the world. And it, and there, I'm not under any pretense. Everybody knows football, uh, the soccer. They make a lot of money. But I I often think to myself. It, it can even be as crazy as it sounds. They can like, make even more money than they make, which is crazy. Yeah, for me no, to say. of course. I mean, think of like you know, in any business, right? Like, for instance, our business. One of the metrics we watch more most often is what is how many dollars are we making every month from a customer. In 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 FIFA and soccer, the dollars per month from the cost from each customer is probably the lowest of any sport there is. 
But there's just so many customers, so many fans of soccer that it doesn't matter. It doesn't, yeah. And, and, and I said it to myself, I know it doesn't matter because it's the number one sport. It's not going to change. The passion is there. It's growing in the other countries, maybe not here. Well, yep. here a little bit, but still not the level that it would be like that. But still, I just, I, like you said, I sit to myself and say, soccer could even make even more money if they just figured it yeah, out. It'd be ridiculous more. But um, nah, so as, before, as we close, before we start getting into the sports conversation here, we... Yeah. I want to give the audience a chance to, you know, to to, to follow you, get to know what you're doing, yep. and how uh, they can be more familiar with Teachable, and yep. just basically whatever that you you, you got planned because you got a lot of amazing things going on. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, in general, you know, our site is at teachable.com. I'm also pretty active on Twitter. If anyone you know has any follow up questions, uh, my Twitter is just my full name. Um, but yeah, check out our site. Um, let me know if I can be helpful. All right, and that's at Anchor Nagpal on Twitter, www.teachable.com. And um, he's not lying. I just sent him an email, and that's how we did the interview. So uh, yep. so make sure you reach out to him. He's got an amazing platform for people. And, yes, my course will be on there sometime. So I, didn't, I did not. Uh, audience, I, I might have failed, but that's that. What, one thing I like to tell you all is, you know, use your difference to make a difference. So uh, make yep. sure you do that. Thank you for joining the show, Anchor. No problem, man. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to use your difference to make a difference, as well as for show notes, head over to www.uidmag.com. Till next time, go out and make an impact in your world. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.